I never want anybody to feel like if you can't be in the street protesting, then you're not a quote unquote true activist. No, activism first starts in the heart. Welcome to Contemplating Now, a podcast focused on the intersection of contemplation and social justice. Through interviews with scholars, mystics, and activists, this podcast will focus on contemplative spiritualities, direct relationship with issues of social justice. I'm your host, Cassidy Hall, a filmmaker, podcaster, pastor, and student, and I'm here to learn with you. Dr. Leah Gunning Francis is the Vice President for Academic Affairs and the Dean of Faculty at Christian Theological Seminary in Indianapolis, Indiana. During the Ferguson Uprising in 2014, after the murder of Mike Brown, Dr. Gunning Francis was serving as the Associate Dean for Contextual Education and Assistant Professor of Christian Education at Eden Theological Seminary in St. Louis, Missouri. As a result, Dr. Gunning Francis wrote the book Ferguson and Faith, Sparking Leadership and Awakening Community. In the book, she interviewed more than two dozen clergy and young activists who were actively involved in the movement for racial justice in Ferguson and beyond. Her forthcoming book from Chalice Press is titled Faith After Ferguson, Resilient Leadership in Pursuit of Racial Justice, and is due out later this year. Dr. Gunning Francis earned a Bachelor of Science degree in Marketing from Hampton University, a Master of Divinity degree from the Candler School of Theology, and a Doctor of Philosophy degree from Garrett Evangelical Theological Seminary. All right. Well, first of all, thank you so much for joining me today and for your willingness to have this conversation. Thank you so much, Cassidy, for having me today. So one of the things that's really helpful to orient us to this conversation is what does the word contemplation mean to you? And also, what does the word mysticism mean to you? And both maybe how you see those lived out in the world today. The way I've thought about contemplation and mysticism, even in my own life, is, you know, the act of contemplating, the very process of giving sustained, intentional attention to something, and not just doing what we often do is where we might think about something for a minute or two, and then we're moving on to the next thing, or we might look at a piece of art for a minute or two, and then we've gone on to the next exhibit, but rather to contemplate is to to look at longingly, to think about intentionally, and to synthesize those thinkings and insights with other experiences in your life. And so, you know, we don't do contemplation in a vacuum, if you will, but rather when we really give our full self, our full attention to something, to someone, um, and to uh, really lean all the way into that process of reflection, then we can take out of it some very key learnings about ourselves as well as others, some insights for how we connect those things with other areas to our lives. And that is what leads me to thinking about mysticism, where we take all of that and connect it to our thoughts and understandings about God and God's activity in our lives and in the world. And so for me, the kind of first steps are contemplation and the thinking deeply and longingly and intentionally and reflective piece. And then 
the mysticism for me comes into when we connect that with, okay, how do we see God at work here? How do we understand God to be speaking in the midst of these circumstances? How do I feel and know God's spirit within me? Uh, so that's how I understand and try to live into both contemplative and mystical uh, ways of being. Mm, that's beautiful. I, I wrote down right away when you said, look at longingly and think about intentionally. Very, very powerful. And so along with that, as, as you discuss contemplation and mysticism, how do you see those things or do you see those things playing a role in social action and social justice in the world today? I do. You know, when you think of mysticism, one of the first people that comes to my mind, as well as many others, is that of Dr. Howard Thurman. And when we think about his writings and we think about his work throughout his career and vocation, you know, he very much integrated his reflections, his writing into the work of social action and social activism and speaking up and speaking out um, as to how you know, we need to connect these things. So absolutely. And so whether you're talking about, you know, Dr. Howard Thurman, or you're talking about uh, one of the young teenage activists that we see on the street who is there because she or he knows that, number one, injustice has occurred. Two, um, they've thought about, they've contemplated, you know, how should they respond? And three, the very act of responding in a way that gives voice to who they understand themselves to be, what they feel called to do, how they want to show up in the world is an expression, I think, of those very early steps of contemplation. So yes, absolutely. You know, so often we like to think about the act of contemplation as solely being, you know, kind of the, the quiet, still action, but that's a first step in the contemplative process, because at the end of the day, what you're contemplating ought to cause you to live differently and intentionally. Amen to that. Yeah. And Dean Gunning Francis, in your book, Ferguson and Faith, Sparking Leadership and Awakening Community, you write about the role of faith in the experience of Ferguson after the murder of Mike Brown in 2014. First, this is going to be maybe a two-part question, because first, I'd love for you to kind of tell that story of, of your experience of that and participation in that, and then perhaps also how you might define the role of faith in activism and how you've perhaps seen that change since Ferguson. You know, when I think back to that very, very tragic time on August 9th of 2014, it was just an ordinary, regular, hot August Saturday afternoon. People were out and about. Folks are getting ready for the new school year to begin. And we had this tragedy of this unarmed teenager being shot and killed in the middle of a residential street um, in Ferguson, Missouri. And as we all know, after that, young people took to the street and said, no, we're not just going to look away. We will not pretend that this is just another tragic incident that we can't do anything about, but rather we're going to stay and demand justice and demand that this stop happening. And what we saw was clergy, some clergy starting to join those efforts. And I was one of them along with many others. And to be able to see 
people who identify as clergy people, whether they're serving in churches or other kinds of ministry contexts, but to go into the streets and to be there as an expression of their faith. Not saying, okay, why don't you come and, you know, let's come into my church and talk about this or just merely pray about it, but rather clergy found themselves praying with their feet, leaving the pulpits, going into the streets, standing with young people, being a voice uh, for justice and for change in really, really remarkable ways. And so to be able to record some of these stories of both the faith leaders as well as of some of the young activists really just shed light on a lot of things that people didn't know was happening. So for example, you know, a lot of times people would say, well, we saw the tanks and the tear gas, but we didn't know that so many faith leaders and clergy people were out there, were bailing people out of jail, were providing food and supplies, were providing safe sanctuary. And so to be able to tell those stories in a book like Ferguson and Faith really gave other congregations some imagination for what they can do too. For so many, they thought that those kinds of things only happened back during the civil rights movement of the 50s and 60s. But rather, to see those very same things happening today in the St. Louis area, and now, fast forward to the year 2021, we've seen this happening all over the country. I'm very heartened to see faith leaders and faith communities waking up to the really important intangible ways that they too can and should engage in the movement for racial justice. And as we know, you know, not everybody can be in the streets. There are some people who've said to me, you know, Dr. Francis, I would love to go out there, but I just can't do it. And I said, that's all right. What can you do? How would you like to give expression to your faith? And so you have people that, you know, provide food in, in, in safe sanctuary spaces or are being advocates to their legislators and making phone calls and sending emails and galvanizing other groups that they're a part of. Listen, friends, all of that is being a part of the movement for racial justice. I never want anybody to feel like if you can't be in the street protesting, then you're not a quote unquote true activist. No, activism first starts in the heart. And when you determine in your heart that what you are seeing in our world should not be, you cannot let it stand, then out of your heart can come the kinds of actions and activities and words that will help move the movement forward. Mm, Amen. You know, some of the things you just spoke to about clergy being present in activism as an expression of faith um, and the ways that we pray with our feet and, you know, especially this, this activism starts in the heart. And I'm drawn to thinking about you know, the biblical text shows us the presence of activism from time immemorial. Um, you know, the desert fathers and mothers essentially, you know, going away from uh, empire in order to actually express themselves. And where, where do you think Christianity began separating activism from our faith. I think in America, that's probably easy to point to things like white supremacy culture and those types of things and the way that's corrupted and co-opted faith in America to think that activism is not a deep, deep part of faith and an innate part of faith. 
I wonder if you might speak to anything as to where you see that separation beginning to happen. One could argue that the separation began with the way in which biblical interpretation has been done to privilege and prioritize white male patriarchy and reinforce that system. So, I, I mean, I think quite honestly, that perhaps is where it began. And it's not until we've seen over the past century or so to have more scholars who have been insistent on saying no, that is not what the text says. That is not what the biblical evidence supports or the other you know, uh, archaeological evidence supports. And so we are decentering this notion of white male patriarchy uh, as sort of the crux of the Bible and rather opening the story to um, the stories, excuse me, a more truthful uh, narrative and, and embedding that in contextual realities, I think has made a significant difference. And so when you couple that with the various movements, you know, again, over the past century or so uh, that have shown light on the discrepancies, the disparities, the systems that reinforce the system of white supremacy and the pushback against that, oh, it inevitably, you know, the Bible has <laughs> come under much needed closer scrutiny as well. And our, and as a result of that, our theological understandings uh, as well. So I take it all the way back there and sort of pull it forward. And I just see those same struggles continuing to happen. And they're going to have to keep happening because, you know, look at what we see happening today with the assault on critical race theory, and which is a very truthful, fact-based telling of our history in this country. But when you look at the onslaught of this, and there's actual legislation being passed today to prevent teachers from teaching actual facts about the United States history of enslavement, of um, Jim Crow, of redlining, and you know, of lynching. The list goes on and on and on. The truth about what happened during the Reconstruction era, um, and so all of this pushback is not separated from the biblical understandings that have been promulgated for so long that reinforce and reinscribe the system and pattern of white supremacy and how we have to continue and, and just speaks to the fact of how we have to continue to be adamant in correcting that record. Yeah. Do you, do you think it would be safe to say that our pursuit as clergy people in tethering and ensuring our faith is tethered to activism, especially racial justice, social justice activism, is actually a return to the truth and the roots of our faith. I think that it is, because we can see throughout the biblical narrative. <laughs> Anybody would be hard-pressed to not see Jesus as a revolutionary. When you look at the very practical actions that Jesus took throughout his life, they were actions of what? 
Oh, bringing in people that were in on the margins, um, engaging women in respectful ways and ways that were designed to lift up and not further subjugate them, to say, welcome the little children, let them come to me, to um, running the money scammers out of the temple, to really being able to look at the system and, and provide the, the, a, a, criti- a critical lens to you know, the system of the empire that was subjugating too many people and say, no, we need to set a new order. And that's what he set out to do. So absolutely, it is a return to the core and the crux of our faith. Could you share a little bit more about your forthcoming book, Faith After Ferguson, Resilient Leadership in Pursuit of Racial Justice? And maybe you could share a little bit about the origin story of why you're writing another book and um, maybe what was missing the first time around and maybe how you're sharing what has changed since then. Sure. So uh, a few years ago, the good folks at Chalice Press, which is the publishers for Ferguson and Faith, reached out to me and said, Leo, would you be interested in writing a follow-up to Ferguson and Faith? And I said, sure. (laughs) So I set out to go back to St. Louis and Ferguson listen to the stories of people who had been engaged in the movement since the Ferguson Uprise to find out what happened. You know, what's changed since then? How has the movement made an impact on the city of Ferguson and the region around St. Louis and within St. Louis? And so in listening to these stories of some of the things that have changed, laments of things that hadn't changed, we saw that, unfortunately, these killings were still happening around the country. And so even though I had gathered these stories about what happened since Ferguson in Ferguson, I couldn't turn away from what was continuing to happen in cities all around us. And so this past year, more specifically, when we look at what has happened uh, since the killing, George Floyd in Minneapolis and how that arrested the attention of people worldwide when we had to watch that harrowing video where George Floyd was killed right before our eyes. And that too became too much to bear for too many people. And we saw the protests and the outrage all around the globe. And so to bring the story of Ferguson forward all the way to today, through the George Floyd protests, through the Breonna Taylor protests, all the way to the U.S. Capitol invasion, where we saw before our eyes U.S. citizens standing at the foot of the Capitol, the U.S. Capitol, taunting, hitting, pushing police, police barricades, making their way all the way up the steps of the U.S. Capitol, busting out the windows of the U.S. Capitol, beating police officers with flagpoles, bursting into the Capitol while the U.S. Congress was in session, making their way all the way to the floor of the House, into our representatives' offices, stealing laptops. All this happened literally right before our eyes. But none of that 
was enough to prompt the U.S. Capitol Police to fear for their lives and start firing on everybody. However, when Philando Castile is driving down the street and tells the officer, yes, I am a licensed to carry a gun owner, there's a gun in the glove compartment or wherever it was, but he wasn't committing a crime. He and his girlfriend and child were driving wherever they were going. He ends up dead. Tamir Rice, 12-year-old on a playground with a toy gun within seconds, ends up dead. Um, Brianna Taylor, asleep in her home, they're serving a warrant for somebody. She ends up dead. I mean, and the list goes on and on. How within seconds, seconds of police coming into contact with somebody that they deem suspicious and that person too often being Black, they wind up dead. But yet we saw before our eyes police literally being threatened, literally being beaten. The U.S. Congress, Congress people's lives were endangered. And the response was stand back and stand by, pretty much. So, you know, ladies and gentlemen, we, we are at a point where under no circumstances are we able to continue to tolerate this myth that there is not a stark and significant and lasting divide between the way white people are treated by police officers and black people are treated. Like the U.S. Capitol completely blew that myth out of the water that there's equal treatment under the law is blown it out forever and ever. Amen. So bringing all this forward into Faith After Ferguson, basically the premise is not just to say, okay, well, here's what happened with all of these events. Everybody, anybody who's been paying attention kind of knows what's happened. But what Faith After Ferguson is challenging us to do is to say, okay, one, this is who we are. Every time I hear a politician say, well, this isn't who we are. We're better than this. The data doesn't support that. This is who we are. The capital invasion is who we are. George Floyd lying on a Minneapolis street pleading for his life is who we are. And Faith After Ferguson is calling us to stand in our truth, to stand in that truth and to say that if we want to forge a better way forward for our children, our grandchildren, all of those coming after us, we have to stop and pivot. Otherwise, we're going to keep living this out, playing this out time and time again. And if we don't hurry, like there's an urgency to all of this, Cassidy. This is not something we can continue to say, well, let's just kick back and wait. Let's see what happens. You know, we have to, we can't rush. We have to take our time. No, we can not wait. Dr. King said that, what, back in 1960? No, we can't wait. And here we are in 2021, still yelling, screaming the mantra, we cannot wait. The time is now. Urgency is upon us. And if we do not take action, if we do not take the kind of action that is going to 
put us on a trajectory of true equality for all, where all people are truly valued as full human beings created in God's image and given the space to be able to live in that truth, we're going to keep having this kind of tyranny, if you will, this tyrannical uh, way of living and being in this in this country. And it should not be permitted to stand any longer. Yeah. Yeah, you mentioned, I really appreciate you mentioning the importance of urgency. And, um, you know, you mentioned King and the, the fierce urgency of now, right? And he also speaks to the tranquilizing drug of gradualism. And if that is not a drug that most of America is taking, I don't know what their drug of choice is because, wow. Well, it's easy to take that or, you know, the, to accept the, the, well, we have to gradually do this when you're not the one being impacted by the effects of the actions. Like the only people saying, well, let's take our time are people for whom they're not feeling the daily effects of racism or other kinds of injustice. That's, those are the only people, <laughs> the, the people for whom the system was designed to work are the only ones saying, you know, let's take our time while trying to squelch the voices at the polls, at the ballot boxes, in the streets of those who are saying, no, this is not working for all of us. We must change. Why do you think there is such intentional and speedy efforts? Why aren't they taking their time in uh, changing voting rights <laughs> to something that's good for all? They've sped through actions to restrict voting rights. They've sped through actions to restrict the teaching of an actual and factual history History of this country. They've sped through all these other kinds of things, but we, when we talk about taking speedy acts of justice, that's when it becomes, well, we need to take our time. Once in a class, you, you came and spoke with, actually it was my cohort, I believe, and you came into my cohort and you were sharing your vocational story. And you started talking about Ferguson and you mentioned Ferguson didn't know they were Ferguson until they became Ferguson. And it's something I've thought about a lot in the ways that it points to the fact that we're always in the midst of that collective progress through struggle if we choose to participate. And it seems to me all too often people wait until they know what's happening before they begin participating. But this has been happening uh, our whole lives. And yet people all too often wait to show up. And I wonder if, I mean, this goes to the urgency point, but I wonder if you could speak a little bit to that. You know, as you said, Ferguson didn't know they were Ferguson. People used to say that to me when I was touring with the book. They would say, oh, Dr. Francis, you don't understand. Our town is not like Ferguson. And that's when I would respond and say, well, Ferguson didn't know they were Ferguson until they became Ferguson. And my hope is by now that more and more people are seeing that, you know, we can't continue to either wait until something, quote unquote, happens in our town, in our community, because as you've said, things have already been happening. This has already been going on for so long, and we've only seen the tip of the iceberg. If it were not for these cell phone cameras, we would still be 
thinking about this the way we did in 1975. Like, you know, so beginning to think that, oh, things aren't as bad as they are anymore. No, yes, they are. So cell phones have brought that to life for us and put that in our face in a way that can no longer be denied, that help us to understand that, yes, there are times when police officers do not tell the truth about what happened in an incident. We've seen that documented time and time again. You know, we no longer can just pretend that we haven't seen what we've seen. And to encourage people to ask yourself if you are somebody who is saying, well, let's just wait, or we don't have those problems in my community, to really take it upon yourself to, one, explore, well, why do you feel that we need to wait? Is it because you are not feeling the brunt of the negative impact of these kinds of things, one. And two, start talking to others in your community if you feel like, oh, those things don't happen here. You know, go talk to some clergy people or other clergy people if you're a clergy person. Talk to some local teachers and find out what's happening in the schools. Talk to some social workers and find out what's happening in the community. You know, let's broaden our circle of inquiry to do a little bit more investigative work to uncover what are the kinds of issues that you and your voice are needed to be an advocate for right where you are in your community. Yeah, and as you mentioned about activism beginning in the heart, recognizing, you know, especially for white people in my own experience, um, understanding the heart issue of, of not seeing the urgency of other people's lives and other human beings that are, you know, my neighbors, my friends, my, um, my community. So I think that that's such a big heart issue. My whole life, I have wondered why one scripture in particular is not held up and heralded the way some other scriptures are used to justify discrimination in all kinds of forms. And that one scripture that I never hear on repeat is do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Why is that? Like, you know, I, I if we were to truly just take that into our hearts and minds and be able to empathize, use that as a basis for cultivating empathy, to be able to look around us and say, gosh, even though my child is never stopped for walking down the street because they're a black or brown person. I can imagine how I would feel if that did happen to my child or if my sister was treated this way. You know, so even though something might not be happening to you, how do you take that one scripture into your heart, into yourself, use it as a basis for cultivating empathy, even though my um native language might be English. How might I feel if I were a person for who had another native language in this country and being treated um, in a very you know, negative and, and, and harmful way? And the list just goes on and on, even though the even those, right? That might not be me or happening to me or somebody that I love. 
Let's use that scripture to cultivate empathy within ourselves, within our hearts, to ask ourselves, what would I want somebody to do if I was being treated that way? And why don't you get busy doing that? Amen. Yeah. You spoke a little bit about this earlier. And in the context of being dean of faculty and a faith leader in the community of Indianapolis and being dean of faculty at Christian Theological Seminary, how how does social justice activism look in scholarship and the world of academia in terms of redefining that, right? Institutions are historically so corrupt and um, oppressive. You know, I am so thankful to be a scholar in this particular era because we see scholars of all sorts, of all colors, of, of all ways of being in the world pushing those boundaries all the way out. And so to be able to learn and grow and expand one's mind uh, from the writings and the works of scholars in today's academy around the world, and this is global, this isn't just about U.S. scholars, this is, these are global ways of writing and being that are really pushing back against white, patriarchal, heteronormativity, classist norms that are really causing us to say, no, we're not going to continue to think, write, and talk about these issues in the same way anymore. We're not doing it. So what a joy. And I think that students today are able to benefit from it. That's why folks are pushing back so hard against saying, no, we can't teach anything truthful about race and racism. We can't say the words white supremacy. We can't criticize empire. Of course they are. Who's saying that? <laughs> Upholders of empire. <laughs> so, you know, the resistance movement is happening in the academy. And let's get on board with that. Let's support that. Let's have that trickle down into K through 12, because we don't need to have to have our students unlearn these things once they're, you know, going into college, but rather learning the truth as very, very young people. Yeah. You, you also touched on this a little bit earlier, but I wonder if you might speak to how you've maybe specifically seen um, contemplation and activism as a part of collective protests and movements and how maybe there's a specific story about a person, a young, you mentioned young people and seeing mysticism in young people in the streets. And I wonder if there's maybe a specific story or a specific person where you've really seen this mystic come alive through their work in the streets. One particular action of contemplation that I think illustrates the way that a group can engage in an act of contemplation is through the die-ins. And what a die-in is, is when um, a person or a group will lay on the ground in sort of commemoration of what the person, of, of the person who has been killed. So for example, um, after the horrific killing of George Floyd, we had a march here in Indianapolis where there were um, estimated a little more than a thousand people that we rallied at the Indiana State House and then marched 
to the city county building. And once we got to the city county building, we held what was what was called a die-in, where we invited all of the March participants to just lie on the ground where they were. So you had people in the streets, you had people on the sidewalks, on the grass, wherever they could find a spot to just lie down on the ground. And we asked them to lie there for eight minutes and 46 seconds, which at that time is what we thought was a time that George Floyd was lying on that Minneapolis street. And as people were lying on the ground, we had someone read the name of a person that had been killed by a police officer, unarmed people killed by a police officer. And after each name was read, our drummer would hit the bass drum. And so during that eight minutes and 46 seconds, people reported lying on the ground and just being able to think and reflect and imagine not only what it would be like or must have been like for George Floyd lying on the ground during that time, but to think about all these other names of people that they're hearing called who also ended up on the ground long before they ever should have, and to be able to reflect on their own roles in this movement for justice. So the die-in, the time of intentional thinking and reflecting and contemplating exactly what this impact is of police violence on real, living, breathing, everyday people was um, a really stark and meaningful moment for who participated. And many people reported back to us that, that very thing. And so out of that, you know, can grow actions of mysticism where we're saying, hey, this is not what God wants. This is not what we believe God calls us to do. How do I join this, join where God is already active in this world? You know, a funny story from Ferguson and Faith with that was when I was um, interviewing some of the young people in St. Louis back in 2014 and 15, and a young woman named um, Alexis, who was very active in the streets, and she said, you know, during the protests, there was one time that I went to church with my grandmother just to kind of make her happy. And I think many people know what that's like. And so she said they were not, she was not protesting that day and went to a Bible study with her grandmother. And as soon as she gets in there, the pastor starts talking about those young people, they need to come off those streets and they need to come into the church. And she said, she spoke up and said, well, I thought your punchline was go out and do. And I'll laugh about that for the rest of my life. You know, the go thee therefore into the world. She called that the punchline. And so if the punchline of our faith is to go out, why are you chastising people for being out there and for standing up as expressions of their faith? And so here she was, because so often, you know, people think, oh, those young people out there, they don't know anything about God. They don't know anything about faith. And that's not true. Just because they don't worship and, and understand and engage actions of faith the way you do, that does not mean they don't 
worship and 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 engage their sense of spirituality in a way that is not very meaningful. So, you know, we're seeing that all over. We're seeing people that are um, saying, "I don't feel welcome in your church because of." who I choose to love or because of how I choose to show up in the world. And since I don't feel welcome in your church and you make me feel like an outcast, we're seeing people start, you know, various communities of spiritual growth on their own, where they're having times of gather, they're having times of prayer, they're having times of using resources and readings that are meaningful to them that can include scripture that can also go beyond scripture. So, you know, it's not that there are not people that are not yearning and longing and living into contemplative ways of faithfulness. They're just not always doing it in, um, these traditional ways of being church that they have found very hurtful. Beautifully, beautifully put. As we come to the end of our time, one question I want to be sure to ask you is, you mentioned Howard Thurman in the beginning, and you've mentioned some some young activists. And I wonder if those might answer this question or maybe someone else, but who is someone or some people that embody mysticism for you? Every time... I look in the eyes of young people, of not so young people out there on the streets, standing up, speaking up. I see mystics. I do. I do. And even if they're not using God language, if you will, I see their hearts coming and shining through their eyes. I hear it in their voices. I hear it in their cries. I hear it in their laughter. I hear it. I see it in their tears. And so that is what is giving me hope. How is it that you don't become discouraged? How is it that you, you know, stave off being becoming despondent in the midst of so much adversity? And my encouragement to people is just to lift up your head and look around. Yes, the opposition is fierce. Yes, the opposition can cause you to become discouraged. I know what that feels like. But if I just keep looking longingly, I see signs of hope and growth and love all around. No, it may not always have the loudest voice. No, it may not always have the most prominent place and definitely will not have that on television (laughs) and other kinds of outlets like that that we're seeing. But we can't let that chatter distract us from the realities that are happening all around us. And that is there really is a movement afoot of men and women and black people and white people and Asian people, Latina people and native people and and young people and children and elderly people and all around that are actively engaging. And so I just say just just. Lift your head, look around, look in the eyes, but don't forget to look in your own heart. Have a heart to heart with yourself and say, you know what, self, now is the time. Now is the moment. I'm ready to take that next step and just go and do it. 
Dean Gunning Francis, uh, thank you so much for joining me and for taking the time to connect with me today. It is always my pleasure to talk with you, Cassidy. Thank you so much for the remarkable work you're doing and the way that you're doing it. I know it's making a difference. Many blessings to you. Thanks for taking the time to listen to today's episode. To support this work and get sneak peeks of new episodes, join me at patreon.com slash Cassidy Hall. The podcast is created and edited by me, Cassidy Hall. Today's episode features the song Trapezoid Instrumental by Emily Sankofa, which she has generously allowed us to use. Please find this song and more from Emily Sankofa on your favorite streaming platform like Spotify or by visiting e sankofa.com. The podcast is created in partnership with The Christian Century, a progressive ecumenical magazine based in Chicago. The podcast is also created in partnership with Enfleshed, an organization focused on spiritual nourishment for collective liberation. For liturgical resources, head over to enfleshed.com.